This week, I read that working couples who don't want to have children are going viral on social media to brag about their child-free lifestyles and how they're splurging their income on luxuries. Meanwhile, since 1971, America's fertility rate, as well as many European and even Asian countries, has fallen below the replacement level, and population projections don't foresee the replacement returning in any time soon. Is it any coincidence that the Apostle Paul prophesied that in the last days, people will be unloving, devoid of natural human affection? So we must guard our hearts to love people and to reach out to individuals with much wisdom. Stay with me for a look into the latest prophetic trends. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. We're living not only in a time when many young people don't want to have children, but also a new study reveals the disturbing increase in suicides among teenage girls. The study's results are truly shocking. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, claimed that suicide attempts by high school girls have increased by 51%. That's one out of every three girls. In contrast, suicide attempts by teenage boys were much less, but there was still an increase of 4%. Some experts are blaming long-term effects of COVID lockdowns for the many female suicides, but others blame woke ideology, along with multiple voices on social media, constantly pushing unrealistic expectations on young women. When radical elitists can't even define a woman, females are suffering an identity crisis. They don't feel they're being regarded as valuable persons, affirmed in their womanhood. The last few decades have been focused on equalizing men and women instead of celebrating their inherent unique differences. Yet, biological males are unfairly being allowed to compete in women's sports. Why should a young female athlete try for greatness when titles and trophies are being stolen by biological men who have an inherent physical advantage? Strangely, I've yet to hear feminists complaining about this insane injustice. Of course, the Bible teaches that God created two genders to complement one another. But today, girls are being taught that there's no real difference between the sexes. And privacy is also being removed in bathrooms, showers, and locker rooms, along with self-worth. Students are left to weather the storm of woke lectures and educational assignments that question the basics of biology. How is a young woman to know that she is immensely special and valuable if she doesn't have affirmation? Surely, healthy emotional lives are the result of embracing truth. May God help us to walk in truth. But there's a great war and all-out assault on truth, let's face it. 
From the very beginning, Satan undermined God's truth by asking a crafty question in Genesis 3.1. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? The question is being constantly rephrased all the time. Did God really say marriage is between a man and a woman? Did God really say thou shalt not commit adultery, fornicate, and so forth? All of God's laws to protect human beings are being undermined and questioned. And in the end, there will be only two kinds of people, lovers of truth and lovers of the lie. It's vital not to become callous, weary, and unloving and without natural affection, as Paul warned would happen in 2 Timothy 3.3. This week, I received a timely email from a New Zealand minister Andrew Strom, that struck a chord with me. His email was titled, Love People, Please. Andrew wrote that when he was a young believer, he was a total zealot, but he lacked wisdom and love. He cared more for truth than he cared for people. And he said he used truth as a club to clobber people rather than setting them free. To Andrew, truth was king, and it wasn't just an occasional problem. This was the way he said he lived and breathed, total, all-out zealotry. But God dealt with him, and he mellowed to the point that today he still deeply cares about truth, but he said he no longer takes the all-out zealous approach to witnessing. As I read his email, I thought how similar I was in my early revival days. I was so zealous, so unseasoned. Sometimes I'll still occasionally debate issues, but I won't engage in long arguments on social media. Those are a trap, a waste of time and energy. We mustn't let people bait us because the aggressive argumentative types can be downright hateful. From God's point of view, the most precious thing in all the earth is people. As the most famous Bible verse, John 3, 16 declares, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what it's all about. So we must honestly ask ourselves, do we love people and especially God's people? If we are to represent the Lord on this planet as his ambassadors, we have to genuinely learn to channel God's love to hurting, lost souls. Andrew's email brought to my mind the chorus, People need the Lord, which goes, At the end of broken dreams, He's the open door. When will we realize people need the Lord? Even Barbara Streisand's song has some truth in it. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. But we won't be lucky if we love people. We'll be blessed to bless them by sharing the gospel as led by the Holy Spirit. And that's the key. Yes, to be effective, we must learn to yield and to be led by the Holy Spirit and not jump on everybody, but speak as we're prompted by the Lord or speak whenever we're asked to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. Amen. Well, in other prophetic news this week, I saw this headline from Prophecy News Watch about drone wars. And instantly, the photo made me think of prophecies in the book of Revelation. 
In fact, the closer we come to the time of the Great Tribulation, the more the symbolism in the book of Revelation becomes easier to comprehend. For example, these drones look like swarms of locusts. And the apostle John saw in his apocalyptic visions nearly 2,000 years ago some type of weaponized locusts. Listen to Revelation 9.3. And there came up out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. A popular book in the 60s suggests that John saw attack helicopters like we're familiar with today, but swarms of drones seem even more up-to-date to the description. China appears to be interested in swarm capability as a method of attacking aircraft carriers. Some reports indicate that China has successfully tested a swarm of at least a thousand drones. Reportedly, several militaries have been working on developing artificial intelligence allowing drones to work together without the need of an operator. Several test simulations by the U.S. Navy have shown that drone swarms are consistently able to go past ship defenses, meaning an enemy ship can be successfully attacked with a large number of drones. Experts in the industry fear humans could lose control of drone warfare. As a drone swarm grows in size, Artificial intelligence will be needed to coordinate decisions, and therefore a massive drone swarm prone to errors would be a dangerous development. Terrorism experts predict drone swarms are a new weapon of mass destruction. In other end-time news all over the world, crops are failing, and this comes at a time when global food supplies have been growing tighter and tighter. A wheat farmer in Oklahoma said that his farm is experiencing the most severe drought he's ever seen. And another farmer in Oklahoma actually compared current conditions to the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. In his article on the food crisis, commentator Michael Snyder wrote that most Americans are not going to care about the emerging global famine until it really affects them personally. But one of the primary reasons why a typical family now pays $300 for a cart of food at the grocery store is because global food supplies are much tighter than they once were. Southern Europe's farmers are also facing a crop crisis. Months of drought have interrupted this year's harvest, and some Spanish ecologists are warning the country may soon be unable to sustain cereal crops, wheat and barley. As a result, hunger is on the rise. The Global Report on Food Crises for 2023 highlights that the number of people experiencing acute food insecurity and requiring urgent assistance is on the rise. Contributing to the increase have been economic shocks and the Ukraine war. If we still have plenty of affordable food to eat, that's a blessing, and we're continually thankful to the Almighty but others are not so fortunate. Reportedly, 45 million precious souls around the world that meet the technical definition of being on the brink of starvation are existing right now. Conditions are particularly harsh in the West, in Central Africa, and also in East Africa. The worst drought in 40 years is causing an unprecedented crisis across the region.
forcing millions of Somalis to have to abandon their homes. Five consecutive failed rainy seasons have pushed that fragile nation to the brink of famine. According to a food security analysis presented by the UN, the number of people without regular access to safe and nutritious food is projected to hit 48 million during this summer's months. This week, I saw this headline about a Hebrew Bible more than a thousand years old being sold for $38 million, becoming the most valuable manuscript ever to be offered at auction. I thought to myself, yes, indeed, this word of God is still the most valuable treasure in the world today, and it always will be. But there's also a drought of God's word in many Western nations, of which genuine believers are all painfully aware. Islam is growing in France as the West sleepwalks in indifference. For the first time in modern history, practicing Muslims in France outnumber practicing Catholics. This unprecedented change is being compared to the fable frog boiled alive by slowly turning up the heat. The French National Institute of Statistics reports that between the ages of 18 and 59, one and a half million Catholics reportedly still pray regularly, while two million Muslims pray on a regular basis. Demographics will play a huge part in the future of these numbers because 65% of practicing Catholics are over 50 years old, but in contrast, 73% of practicing Muslims are under the age of 50. Let's let that sink in. Immigration rates will also play an important role in just how fast Islam takes over France. The influx of massive numbers of Muslim migrants has not decreased, and the birth rates of Islamic families have remained steady, with often three to five children being the norm. Meanwhile, traditional French families are having so few babies they're not even making up the replacement rate. Only Catholics are becoming increasingly secular, and Muslim immigrants are not becoming secular and woke. In the ongoing battle over truth, there is always good news, and my friend Jonathan Felstein, director of the Genesis 123 Foundation, wrote an article hailing Christian Zionists as pillars of the state of Israel. The article warmed my heart because I know this to be historically true, Yet, it still needs to be recognized universally. The term Christian Zionism has existed as long as modern Zionism itself. As Israel has just celebrated its 75th anniversary of independence, it would be a mistake of historical proportions not to recognize the role of Christian leaders who were central to Israel's restoration. Jonathan Felstein wrote that a U.S. survey found that 80% of evangelical Christians believe Israel's creation was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Israel's restoration challenges the underpinnings of erroneous replacement theology, and it has set a new path for ongoing Jewish-Christian relations. Some of the biggest visionaries among Christian Zionists were those who understood, just like the Jewish Zionist leaders, the necessity to establish a Jewish home in the historic land of Israel, and to advocate for it. 
Even many American Puritans believed in the Bible prophecies that one day the nation of Israel would be restored. And in 1818, America's second president, John Adams, wrote that he wished for an independent nation in Judea for the Jews. Half a century later, President Abraham Lincoln had expressed a desire to visit the Holy Land just weeks before he was tragically assassinated and his life ended prematurely. I believe desires to visit the Holy Land are planted in people's hearts by God and for good reason. Lincoln recognized the significance of Israel biblically as being connected to the Jewish people. Then in 1891, the visionary evangelical William Blackstone was the author of the so-called Blackstone Memorial, a petition calling for the return of the Holy Land to the Jewish people. Blackstone was a capable businessman who prospered in real estate, but he renounced material pursuits after a sudden spiritual awakening and became one of America's best-known evangelists during the early 20th century. He was influenced by evangelist Dwight L. Moody and theologian John Nelson Darby. Blackstone constantly proclaimed the premillennial return of Jesus to remove the church by rapture, as stated in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and 1 Corinthians 15.52. As he ministered across the USA, Blackstone spoke with increasing fervor in support of Jewish restoration. In 1878, he wrote the best-selling book, Jesus is Coming, which became the veritable reference source of American evangelical thought. Over the next 50 years, his book sold multiple millions of copies, and worldwide, it was translated into 48 languages. Initially, Blackstone's emphasis was on the restoration of the Jews to the Holy Land in order to hasten the return of Jesus. But then he became increasingly concerned with their welfare due to deadly pogroms in Russia. And so he believed it was necessary to create a homeland to protect the Jewish people in the land of Israel. He was persuaded that neither the European nations nor the United States would accept as many Jews as needed to escape from Europe. And in that, he was a true visionary. Blackstone and his daughter traveled to the Holy Land in 1888, where he was convinced that the return of the Jewish people to their ancient homeland was the only possible solution to the persecutions Jews suffer. Then in 1890, he organized the Conference on the Past, Present, and Future of Israel in Chicago, where delegates included leaders of both Jewish and Christian communities. The conference issued a call urging the great powers and the Ottoman Empire to return the land of Israel to the Jews. Resolutions of sympathy for the oppressed Jews living in Russia were passed, but Blackstone was convinced that resolutions were not enough. He advocated strongly for the voluntary resettlement in the Holy Land of the Jewish people who were suffering under virulent anti-Semitism. And in 1891, he lobbied U.S. President Benjamin Harrison for the restoration of the Jews to the land of Israel in his petition signed by 413 prominent Americans. And here's a quote from that Blackstone Memorial. He wrote, If under the 1878 Treaty of Berlin, Bulgaria was given back to the Bulgarians and Serbia to the Serbians, these provinces, as well as Romania, Montenegro, and Greece, were wrestled from the Turks 
and given to their natural owners. So why not give Palestine back to the Jews? Does not Israel rightfully belong to the Jews, he asked. When he learned of the rise of the Zionist movement led by Theodore Herzl, Blackstone became an outspoken, ardent supporter of Zionism. The British government had made an offer of an interim Jewish state in Uganda, in Africa. But Blackstone rejected that and campaigned against it. He sent a personal Bible to Herzl, outlining the specific biblical references to Jewish restoration only in the land of Israel. This Bible was said to have been prominently displayed on Herzl's desk for many years. As a believing evangelical Christian, Blackstone witnessed the unfolding of biblical prophecy as the Jewish state was beginning to be resuscitated. But he died 13 years before Israel was founded in 1948. Without Reverend Blackstone's lifelong efforts to build American prophetic understanding of the times, American support for Zionism in the state of Israel might have been very different. He was famous during his life, but he subsequently slipped into obscurity. We mustn't let that happen. We must thank God for all the efforts of Blackstone, who described himself, I love this, as God's little errand boy. Well, on the other side of the pond, many times I've had the pleasure to report on the early British Christian Zionists, and one of my favorites was the Anglican priest, Reverend William Heschler. He held up the arms of Zionist founder Theodore Herzl. Heschler earnestly believed that the duty of every Christian is to pray earnestly and to long for the restoration of God's chosen people and to love the Jews. He became a trusted friend and confidant of Herzl, earning Heschler the title of the shadow founder of the modern state of Israel. Other British Christian Zionists include Lord Arthur Balfour, who penned the famous 1917 Balfour Declaration on behalf of the British government, affirming its position to establish a Jewish homeland in the land of Israel. In those days, Britain was a Bible-believing nation, Another pre-state pillar of Christian Zionism was my distant relative, Major General Ord Wingen, who taught the fledgling Israeli soldiers how to fight, using the book of Judges from the Bible as his military handbook. Jonathan Felstein wrote that while today there are numerous pro-Israel ministers all around the world, before Israel's independence on May 14, 1948, not all of the visionaries were widely known. But the Nazi Holocaust caused a group of Christian leaders to gather to take action on behalf of our elder brothers, the Jewish people. These newer Christian visionaries included in the USA Louis Sperry Schaefer, founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, and theologian Harry Ironside of Moody Church in Chicago. Lacking a specific Jewish refuge and going against indifference and even anti-Semitism in their own government, they made an active decision to stand with the Jewish people, providing urgent relief whenever possible to help Jewish people escape Nazi tyranny, eventually supporting Jewish refugees to go to Israel. The Friends of Israel Refugees Relief Committee was born, which became the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, still active today. Now it's hard to imagine Israel without vast international Christian support. 
And as Israel celebrates 75 years of independence, it's important to emphasize that Christian support predates the state of Israel due to the clear words of Bible prophecy. And it's important for the Jewish people to realize, embrace, and celebrate our support. In fact, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, has publicly suggested that Israel should place more emphasis upon building connections and relations with evangelical Christians than with American Jews, because many of them tend to lean to the left or are secular-minded. Evangelicals who advocate for Israel have an impact in Israel, ranging from intercessory prayer to increasing tourism, and also speaking up in their countries in defense of Israel and the Jewish people. An Israeli who understands this trend is our friend Josh Reinstein, who is director of the Christian Allies Caucus in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. From the beginning, 19 years ago, we helped Josh to start the caucus, which has nurtured many Jewish Christian bridge-building ministries. And now there are 52 Israel Allies caucuses and governments worldwide through the coordinating efforts of Josh Reinstein and his Israel Allies Foundation. The network includes the U.S. Congressional Israel Allies Caucus, the European Union Israel Allies Caucus, and other caucuses around the globe. Recently, the Knesset Christian Allies Caucus was relaunched at the Israeli parliament in honor of Israel's milestone 75th anniversary. During that ceremony, the director of the International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem, Jürgen Bueller, noted that Abraham was 75 years old when God called him to go forth to the land of promise, where God promised to make him a great nation that would bless the world. And truly, God's promise is unfolding daily before our eyes. The tiny nation of Israel has overcome incredible challenges since its rebirth 75 years ago, and it has achieved so much already, but is destined yet to be a light to the world during the millennial rule of Messiah. Now, friends, again, I want to say that this word of God should be our fact checker. The Lord's last will and testament bequeathed to us in these holy pages should be our standard in authority. And what does this word of God say? It declares that we must be born again. Our names have to be registered in heaven. In Revelation 21, we have a description of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and it's written that nothing unclean will be allowed to enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or practice falsehood. Literally, it means anybody who makes a lie can't enter. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will gain access to the eternal city of God. So the vital question is, is my name, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Let's think of the Lamb's book of life as heaven's birth register. The only way to get your name registered there is to be born into God's family, to be born again. You see, the Bible says we all have committed sins. We've all failed, every one of us, to live up to the standards God set in the Bible. And because we're incapable of living the way God wants us to live, we're condemned to spiritual death for all eternity unless our spirits are born again, regenerated from above with eternal life. Born again people have embraced the fact that Jesus took the death penalty for us 
In excruciating pain, Jesus patiently bore all of our sins on the cross and made atonement for us. And by receiving Jesus, Yeshua, as our Savior, we pass from death to eternal life. And that's the good news of the gospel. Hallelujah. Well, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to share with me on social media. We also invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our weekly email and watch all our videos 24-7. So until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dart, Maranatha, and Shalom. In my years of ministry in the Middle East, I've had deep spiritual conversations with many followers of Islam who shared with me one overriding experience. They all had at one time or another a dream or a vision about Jesus. And when they do, they have no doubt who he is or why he appeared to them. It's been my joy to document some of those heart-to-heart encounters of Jesus in the Muslim world in my book, Miracles Among Muslims, The Jesus Visions. This has been out of print since its first edition in 2006, but now for the first time, we've made it available to read as an ebook. You can also purchase the new paperback edition. Check it out in the bookshop at Amazon website. And if you have a heart for the Muslim world, I believe this book will be an eye-opening encouragement and great blessing.